Hello and welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a viable path to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Electrification Policy Director with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Accelerating Equitable Transportation Electrification. Transportation electrification is making headlines a lot these days. Three weeks ago, GM announced plans to exclusively offer electric vehicles by 2035. Last week, the Department of Transportation's Secretary Pete Buttigieg at his Senate confirmation hearing indicated his priorities for electric freight vehicles. And the Biden administration issued an executive order calling for the U.S. government fleet to transition to EVs by 2035. And of course, a handful of states have announced plans to phase out the sale of gas-powered vehicles or require all new sales to be electric by 2035. Now, these efforts are driven in part by the fact that the transportation sector is the largest source of climate pollution, responsible for more than a third of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. In addition, pollution from vehicles is a well-known public health threat. Nearly half of all Americans live in counties with unhealthy ozone and particle pollution, And more than 20,000 Americans die prematurely every year from transportation pollutants, which disproportionately impact frontline and environmental justice communities, people of color, children, pregnant women, and the elderly. And as we know, these populations are the most adversely affected by the impacts of climate, such as severe weather events and power outages like those hitting Texas and much of the country right now. And these vulnerable populations in America will continue to suffer environmental injustices and economic and social inequities until bigger systemic changes are made. So any policies aiming to alleviate these crippling forces must be holistic, human-centric, and responsive to the real-world situations people are experiencing. So to that end, many are wondering, how can we really scale the adoption of cleaner transportation options while also addressing the real and perceived challenges of such a transition? What's needed to expand clean transportation and mobility options in an, in an equitable way? What should states and the federal government be doing now to shift gears in the coming decade? With me today to explore these questions and more are three experts in the field. First, we have Shruti Vaidyanathan, Director of Transportation with the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. With 13 years of experience in transportation efficiency issues, Shruti currently oversees transportation research and focuses on state policies to further transportation electrification and the role of emerging mobility options. Shruti, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Alvaro Sanchez, Director of Environmental Equity with the Green Lining Institute, where he leads a team that develops policies to improve public health, catalyze economic opportunity, and enrich environmental quality for low-income communities and communities of color. Alvaro oversees Greenlining's climate equity portfolio and the implementation of Greenlining's Making Equity Real Frameworks. Welcome to the show, Alvaro. Buenas tardes. Thank you for having me. And lastly with us today is Palavi Maracasira, Director of the New Jersey Economic Development Authority's Clean Energy Programs, where she helps shape and lead efforts to ensure the state's long-term competitiveness in the clean energy sector. She oversees grant programs and the development of many initiatives to create green jobs. Welcome, Palavi. Very exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot to cover today, and I am eager to learn more from all of you about your important work in this space. Um, And I'm going to start by just having each of you briefly tell our listeners and me a little bit more about what you do in your respective roles and how you got into doing this work. Shruti, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, So as you mentioned in my introduction, Sarah, I've been with ACCPLE about 13 years working almost entirely on uh, transportation issues. Um, I sort of stumbled a on this career um, as this is my first job fresh out of grad school. So I'm really glad that I've been able to sort of um, grow and learn as the transportation um, world has been evolving these last 13 years. Um, the work that we do at ACCEE um, is, uh, covers multiple um, uh, areas of uh, focus, but in terms of transportation electrification, we've been in this space for a long time, largely through 
um, doing a lot of the work through the lens of our consumer resource, greenercars.org, which um, rates vehicles on how environmentally friendly they are on a life cycle basis. Um, and of course, EVs have typically done really well on those rankings. Um, more recently, we've been focused on thinking through the very specific policy levers at the federal and state levels that will help ramp up the deployment of um, passenger and freight vehicles um, in an ambitious way to meet climate goals, but also in a way um, that is equitable um, so that um, everyone has access to electrified transportation. Um, we're also thinking a lot about how these policies sort of complement fuel efficiency standards in driving the market for electric vehicles. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like very rich work and a lot of a lot of moving parts right now, especially. Alvaro, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do in your role at Green Lining Institute, and how you got into doing transportation equity work. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, I'm the Director of Environmental Equity for the Green Lining Institute. The Green Lining Institute is a 27-year-old research, advocacy, policy, and leadership development organization that's based out of Oakland, California, but we take a statewide approach uh, to the work that we do. We focus on several policy areas. The policy area that I lead is environmental equity. Um, and within the environmental equity uh, portfolio, we focus on uh, addressing poverty and pollution at the same time. Uh, the goal and the vision of green mining is to develop a nation where communities of color thrive and race is never a barrier to economic opportunity. And to do so, as it relates to transportation equity, we're trying to figure out how to uh, ensure that as we advance the deployment of electric vehicle technology, communities of color and those most impacted and least equipped, equipped to be able to take advantage of this new technology um, are core to our strategy moving forward. And that as we reimagine the way that we move people, that um, we really kind of look at root cause issues that are continuing to impact our communities uh, and ensure that we are not only producing a cleaner environment, but also a, must, a more just um, uh, economy and society. Um, and, you know, I think that I stumbled uh, similarly onto this role, uh, having come from a background of community organizing, affordable housing development, and economic development, um, and stumbled onto the work on around environmental issues as I saw the potential, you know, huge amounts of investments that we need to make in building out our infrastructure for it to be more resilient uh, in mitigating climate change and how much we are able to program social equity policy into the way that we're making these investments, given that many of them are driven by the public sector. So this has been a rich place for me to work uh, on and uh, have learned a lot about uh, vehicle electrification and mobility equity. And I think we're beginning to develop a strong practice around how to introduce equity into uh, that initiative. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to dig into that a little bit more and, and learn more about the, the findings and what you're uh, imparting to the states that you're working in. Pallavi, how about you? Um, tell us a little bit more about what you do in New Jersey and how you got into doing this work. Yes, yeah, so I'm the director for the Clean Energy Programs at the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. So the NJEDA for short, um, essentially is an organization that grows the state's economy and increases equitable access to opportunity uh, by supporting a few different initiatives. So we come at it ensuring that there's high quality job creation, catalyzing investment where it's needed, um, and also fostering a vibrant and an inclusive community development. So no matter what programmatic structures or structural frameworks we develop and we continue to put out, we ensure that these are sort of, um, the programs are driven by these core tenets. Um, in my role, I, as I mentioned earlier, as a head of the clean energy programs, I oversee a whole host of um, grant programs, uh, voucher programs, and various types of initiatives that are generally uh, essentially rolled out to support the creation of green jobs. But more importantly, um, I sort of think of the role as two-pronged. Two one is structural and one is more programmatic. From a structural standpoint, um, the New Jersey State and the EDA is working to stand up a green fund uh, for New Jersey. So that, that's a, uh, very likely a structural framework as a way to still deliver on the goals that are stated out in the New Jersey's Energy Master Plan. Um, but from a programmatic approach, we are currently rolling out uh, several key initiatives varying from you know, seed grant programs to fostering very early stage innovation to voucher programs to ensure that 
we are able to rapidly deploy medium and heavy duty vehicles that are zero emission um, on the streets of New Jersey while ensuring that we are driving emissions related benefits um, within overburdened communities. So within the portfolio of clean energy for the EDA, um, I look at everything from your more traditional renewable energy sources like a solar PV manufacturing and solar PV technologies to energy storage, uh, broadly vehicle electrification, but as well um, building energy efficiency and related programs. Um, the way that I came into this role, I've spent my entire career over the last 17 years, primarily and solely in the field of clean energy and sustainability. So I actually started off as a solar manufacturing engineer, um, worked a number of years for two startups here in the United States, transitioned to Wall Street as an equity analyst covering clean tech and servicing and helping out and advising institutional investors, um, and then subsequently also did some work advising Fortune 500 companies as an emerging technologies consultant, but again, squarely focused on all things energy efficiency and sustainability. And I was most recently uh, the head of strategic marketing for a company called Solvay, also centrally focused on rollout of products for sustainability. So for me, the, the common thread across all the roles I've ever held is just broadly all things related to clean energy and sustainability. And so this role um, it sort of fits squarely within uh, that sort of portfolio of everything that I've looked at, but within the but with a different lens. So the lens of a um, of an entity within the government. Yeah, that's a really diverse portfolio and uh, really extensive experience from a number of different angles. That's that's super fascinating. Um, well, I'd like to turn our focus because, you know, I could probably spend the whole show just asking you guys questions about the cool work you do. And, and that is definitely what we want to do. But I want to start getting into some brass tacks details here. Um, turn our focus to what's happening at the state level and a new resource in particular that I want to highlight and have uh, Shruti give us a little bit more information about is a state transportation scorecard from ACEEE. And uh, this, this scorecard evaluates states based on their policy and regulatory activities underpinning their transportation electrification efforts. And uh, it's very comprehensive. I had the opportunity to be a reviewer on the scorecard, and I can attest that it is very thorough, very, very uh, comprehensive from a number of standpoints. Um, but Shruti, tell us a little bit about the scorecard, what it is, what it tells us about the multiple state efforts underway, um, and... Anything else you want to share about it? Sure. Um, happy to. So um, I think, as you mentioned earlier in the call, Sarah, transportation accounts for uh, almost a third of all the greenhouse gas emissions produced in the United States. And we know that electric vehicles are going to be a big part of the solution to address those emissions. So we're really seeing a need to sort of ramp up EV adoption quickly and overcome some of the key barriers like um, upfront costs. Um, and EVs currently are just sitting at approximately 3% of, of the current American market share. So um, we really need to see sort of the big supportive policies in place that can get EVs um, that are being produced by manufacturers into the hands of drivers. Um, so while there's been a lot of activity at the federal level, I think that states also have a really um, clear role to play because they have jurisdiction over a number of things that the federal government doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction. So we wanted to do this report as a way to sort of benchmark um, states on their transportation electrification policies and also identify promising policies that other states that are just sort of thinking through their um, uh, EV journeys can sort of look to to scale up uh, vehicle and charging deployment. So what we did was that we evaluated states across a variety of metrics um, across seven different categories that we um, think are critical to EV uptake. And we came up with this list of metrics by um, reviewing the, the literature to identify um, those that have the, had the greatest bang for buck, and then also talking to a um, large group of um, transportation electrification experts who sort of helped us identify um, the metrics that we included and how to uh, weigh them in our analysis. Um, so basically what we found, uh, and I don't think this will be surprising to anyone, is that California is far and away the leader in sort of creating that supportive policy environment. Um, and is a very good example of a state that has made electrification a priority by setting those deployment targets for both passenger and freight vehicles, um, and then also ensuring, um, at least preliminarily, that transportation and utility policies that guide EV uptake are somewhat equitable 
Um, and I say, I caveat this by saying at least compared to other states, California is a little bit further ahead of the game on that front. Um, so followed closely, not that closely behind, but following behind are New York and Washington, D.C. Um, and um, in terms of some of the key um, aspects where these two um, states slash jurisdictions lead, we see D.C. really being a leader in sort of um, identifying the deployment goals for, for light duty um, electric vehicles and um, really undertaking some fairly significant investment for EV transit buses. Um, additionally, compare, it, uh, D.C. is also one of the only other states um, besides California that requires transportation network companies and other private vehicle for hire businesses to develop greenhouse gas emission reduction plans every two years. Um, so very similar to what California is requiring as part of the clean mile standard um, is actually happening here in D.C., which um, I thought was super interesting. Um, and then in terms of New York, um, New York has really taken the lead on sort of the utility side of things. Um, so they have aggressive state action to um, deploy um, light duty and heavy duty vehicles and EV chargers. And is also really taking large steps to effectively integrate electric vehicles into the grid through the application of, you know, um, unique rates for, for um, DC fast charging and through managed charging programs. And for those unfamiliar with the terminology, DC fast charging is not the District of Columbia fast charging. That's <laughs> that is uh, direct current fast charging, and that's for high high speed uh, charging for larger larger infrastructure and or just to get cars charged quicker. Um, that's really helpful. And and like I said, uh, I was very impressed with both the level of detail you guys were able to go into on each of the states, but also the breadth of the policy landscape that you were able to cover. Um, and it drilled down all the way, as you, as you point out, all the way down to the utility level. Um, but I'm, I'm curious which states have, in your opinion, or based on the scorecard, which states are most ripe for near-term improvement? Yeah, um, I think that the report found a couple of things. So the one um, big takeaway that we took from doing this research is that there are sort of a lot of states that are at the beginning of their EV transition. Um, and so those states are really sort of going to need to actively ramp up their efforts if we're to achieve, I think, not only the significant reductions in emissions, but also to make sure that EVs are sort of accessible on a broader scale. Um, so out of the 50 states in Washington, D.C. that we evaluate, there were 20 states that earned less than 15 points on our 100-point scale. So I would say that is naturally one group of um, uh, states that we can target for um, at least um, incremental improvement in the, in the near, ter near term. The group of states that I want to talk about in more detail, though, are the states that are in um, our top 30. So we provided results in our report for the top 30 states um, uh, on their electrification efforts, transportation electrification efforts. Um, so those states that are in the top 30 but are sort of on the lower end of the scale in the top 30. Um, so these are the states that have uh, made some progress and therefore have the framework in place to take next steps, next steps quickly. Um, and for those states, um, there are a number of activities that we sort of recommend in the report, um, one of which is making sure that they are sort of um, housing their transportation electrification efforts under a broader goal for greenhouse gas reduction. Um, they're actually creating targets for um, EV deployment and, and charging infrastructure deployment. Um, and then thirdly, that they're uh, one of the easiest gets, sort of offering basic um, purchase incentives that cover not only light-duty vehicles and heavy-duty vehicles, but also cover used vehicles um, to make sure that, again, that there's, a broad, there's broad access to, to, electric, to electrified transportation. And then finally, um, we want to make sure that these states are sort of thinking through how they're um, allowing utilities to make investments to support EV charging infrastructure and to implement rates and manage charging programs that sort of encourage the integration of EVs into the grid. Great. Well, I'm sure we could um, have a lengthy conversation about all the states and what's happening. Um, Pallavi, you work in New Jersey, and you have uh, you you all made it into the top 10 of the ACEEE scorecard. Um, tell us a little bit more about what's happening. Yay. Yeah, yay. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Congratulations. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit about what's happening in New Jersey. You, you queued it up in your intro, but, you know, maybe drilling down a little bit more into what sort of programs um, and activities are, are underway there. 
Yeah, first of all, I'm very excited that New Jersey made it into that list. I was sort of waiting for that shout out. <laughs> uh, uh, but from a programmatic standpoint, I'm actually very excited to talk more about, um, or actually any opportunity to talk about our uh, the state's first initiative in the uh, the state's holistic regional gas uh, greenhouse gas initiative or ready funded effort uh, it's called njzip or which essentially stands for new jersey zero emission incentive program so um it is a 15 million dollar pilot program that is likely to fund between 100 and 300 vouchers ranging in value between uh, $25,000 up to $100,000 for qualifying businesses and institutions um, in the greater Newark and the greater Camden area in the state, essentially for the purchase of new zero emission medium and heavy duty vehicles. Um, for the purposes of this pilot program, we have scoped uh, the, the range of vehicles to, to sort of be within a class 2B to a class 6 range, um, sort of factoring in a few different pieces uh, some some of the primary re reasons being that the availability of medium-duty vehicles are obviously significantly um, larger in number compared to the heavier-duty vehicles. And so we want to ensure that these funds are rapidly deployed and we actually start having um, true impacts um, from emissions reductions. Um, and two, we also realize and acknowledge that you, you will need um, charging stations to charge these vehicles up. And so with the existing charging infrastructure, we recognize that being able to fund or put out between 100 and 300 new vehicles will not essentially put too much of a burden on the grid. Um, but that said, um, NGZIP is not the only program that we are launching. We hope to launch NGZIP in Q2 of this year. But this has been an especially exciting week for New Jersey. Um, Governor Murphy announced two specific things actually uh, two days ago. One is that he has established the Office of Climate Action and Green Economy. Um, so this is essentially going to be housed within the governor's office. And the Office of Climate Action and Green Economy will focus on prioritizing and addressing climate change um, while also ensuring that New Jersey's clean energy future um, is very much in line with the ambitions and objectives set out in the Energy Master Plan while transitioning to a green economy. And so in doing and uh, sort of announcing this, uh, the governor also announced a $100 million investment of proceeds from the New Jersey's participation in the REGI initiative, as well as uh, from the VW uh, Mitigation Trust funds, um, and has committed the $100 million across a whole host of programs. So to, just to give you a flavor of some of the programs um, that are in the works. Uh, there's about a $13 million in grants for low and moderate income communities to reduce emissions, a $5 million in grants for equitable mobility projects that will bring electric vehicle ride hailing and uh, charging stations to four New Jersey towns and cities, um, and a $15 million program towards uh, the NJ Transit uh, bus electrification. So as you can see, um, the NJ Zip is the first, but hopefully, and I'm certainly excited for this, will be the first of a suite of programs that we can launch leveraging the REGI funds with the primary goals of ensuring that we are able to drive these emissions impacts within overburdened communities. And in fact, that has been one of the central reasons why we have prioritized the greater New York and the greater Camden area, um, both of those regions being defined as a 10-mile radius outside of Newark and Camden, respectively. So with these programs, complementary programs, addressing slightly different parts of the overall ecosystem, um, I'm, I, for one, I'm very excited, but also super hopeful that I think we are we're definitely on the right track to being able to achieve uh, what's been set out in the Energy Master Plan, which is to achieve a 100% clean energy by 2050 in the state. That is super exciting. And congrats to New Jersey and the governor and, and your team for getting all of that in motion. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there, as you say, and it'll be cool to see how that all rolls out. Um, I, I want to come back to something that you said, but, but first I want to um, touch base with Alvaro uh, because California was uh, number one in the scorecard and often California is number one on these clean energy initiatives. They've been doing a lot of things for many years and typically do stand out. But I'm curious to get your reactions and, and candid reactions are absolutely accepted um, to the scorecard grade in terms of what you're seeing uh, and your experience having worked in California for many years. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
I mean, I think the scorecard accurately reflects that California is leading the charge on vehicle electrification in the country. And I totally agree that here in the Golden State, um, we're doing the most. Um, but I think, unfortunately, that's partly because so many other states are not doing very much at all. Um, so I think while we can feel really proud of what we've done in California, um, by no means does it mean that, you know, we are close to the goal that we have as a state. Um, you mentioned the recent executive order to only sell electric vehicles starting in 2035. I think that's a, that's a big kind of game-changing um, announcement and commitment. Um, but I think that there's folks in the state that think that we might be able to get there faster. Um, 2030 is a number that seems to be coming up a lot uh, in terms of perhaps, uh, you know, kind of getting to that goal uh, before 2035. And I think there's more ambition among some in the state to perhaps uh, uh, get there quicker. Um, another thing is I think for a long time, as demonstrated in the, in the report, uh, yeah, we've been incentivizing the purchase of electric vehicles in the state. Um, but I think it's time to perhaps be looking beyond early adopters as the folks who are prioritized in that um, incentive, uh, you know, resource. Uh, early adopters who tend to be male and tend to be white, and instead start focusing on the hardest to reach communities who end up being people of color, um, addressing the barriers of those with the most challenges adopting this technology, not only serves those folks, but it also actually serves everyone else on the spectrum because everyone else by default has less challenges adopting electric vehicles. And I think that that's one pivot that we need to start making very quickly here in the state. So while California is doing more on equity, and I agree, we've done a lot uh, and, and we feel good about that. Uh, in fact, California has to do so much more. Um, I would say that the equity that we've done in California is probably the minimal type of equity. And moving forward, we need more procedural equity, we need more distributional equity, and we need intergenerational equity if we're serious about having this be a core part of our strategy moving forward. So the scorecard, I think, is really accurate. And for those of us, again, doing the work here in California, I think we can feel really proud of things like the clean trucks uh, rule, uh, the kind of in-progress clean fleet rule. Um, a lot of the mobility equity programs that we've developed, a lot of the charging infrastructure investments that the utilities are making, um, the VW funding that um, sometimes I think people forget um, that came out of that settlement, uh, you know, it being invested in charging infrastructure. I think there's a lot of really good pieces, but um, I think, in fact, uh, we need to move faster, we need to be bolder, and we need to be more intentional to ensure that as we move forward, we're promoting strategies that uplift people, planet, and prosperity. So I think we still have a way to go in terms of feeling 100% like we've, we're really knocking it out of the park. Um, so um, I think it's a good reflection of where we're at, um, but it also means that we have a lot more to grow. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a Californian, but I've worked in California for many years, and I, I think there's a lot to celebrate there and a lot to um, point to as far as best practices, but certainly uh, they're not yet, not there yet and more work to be done. Um, I want to I hone in on the, the term equity. We use it a lot. You guys have used it a lot. Uh, it's, it's very pre prevalent throughout uh, a lot of policy conversations these days. But how do we define transportation equity? And Alvaro, I'll start with you because I think you guys have actually done some very thoughtful work in defining it. Um, and the second question is, what does that really translate to in terms of policy and regulatory actions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, defining equity is one of the things that we emphasize the most in our work because equity, as you mentioned, is a word that a lot of folks are using these days. Um, and in fact, I feel like folks are not actually all um, uh, in agreement on what kind of definition they're using. So one of the things that it, it causes um, is that people are assuming that we're all rolling in the same direction when in fact we might be approaching the conversation from different angles. For greenlining, equity means transforming the behaviors, institutions, and systems that disproportionately harm people of color. Equity means increasing access to power, redistributing and providing additional resources, and eliminating barriers to opportunity in order to empower low-income communities of color 
to thrive and reach full potential. So we use this definition of racial equity across all of our issue areas, um, mobility equity included, um, because I think, you know, the really what we want to hone in on here is really changing and transforming the behaviors uh, of institutions and systems that are disproportionately harming people of color. So when it comes to what does that turn into and what does it translate in terms of regulatory and policy actions, um, what we'd like to emphasize is that equity is not just a commitment. It's not just something you say that you want to do better about. It actually is a practice. And as a practice, there's a lot of details that come along with how we articulate this in policy and regulatory actions. So we've developed several frameworks and we've titled them mobility, uh, sorry, making equity real frameworks in which we are um, challenging our partners in philanthropy and government and the private sector to put details behind their commitments to equity. So that means that not only do you have to say what your vision and mission is as it relates to equity, but how do you actually include, include that in your procedural equity approaches? How do you allow people that have less political capital to make decisions about the strategies that you're introducing? So as it relates to um, electrification, how do you ensure that those that have the biggest barriers to adopting this technology get a role in determining planning, determining goal setting, determining uh, decision-making around the strategies that we have from a regulatory perspective or policy perspective? Then we also are asking folks to really detail out how does that uh, lead to um, distributional or implementation equity outcomes. So if people that have less political capital are involved in the decision-making and planning of policy and regulatory practices, that should by default lead towards implementation that is guided and determined by those uh, that feedback that we're hearing. So is your implementation strategy actually adopting and addressing the things that you're hearing from people with less political capital and whose commitment to equity you put in, in place in the first place. So your implementation actually has to change. And the reason why that's important is because it impacts your timelines, it impacts your budgets, it impacts your outreach, it impacts, um, you know, kind of the, um, the, the goals that you're, you're trying to achieve. And finally, this is something that we often seem lacking um, most everywhere, is that there is no commitment to evaluating for equity as we go through the process. So we are uh, very much encouraging folks to come up with uh, the appropriate qualitative and quantitative metrics to understand whether or not we're making progress towards our equity goals. Um, because if we don't know whether or not we're achieving the goals that we set out um, to you know, deliver on, then uh, you know, we don't know if we're successful or not. So all of these details, in fact, when we looked at um, probably 100 pieces of policy in which equity was mentioned in one way or another, were missing from that policy or that regulatory framework. The regulatory framework and policy would say they wanted to achieve some type of equity outcome, but it didn't have anything related to procedural equity, distributional equity, or equity analysis. So that's what we are now calling on our partners to do. Um, and ensuring that, again, equity doesn't just become a broken promise or a broken commitment, but in fact, it's a practice that we're all training each other on in terms of how to build up uh, and actually deliver on that equity commitment that we have. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, that was so articulate. And, and you guys, as I said, have done so much thoughtful work in um, clarifying these important questions. Shruti, I'm curious, in the scorecard, did you all endeavor to define transportation equity or was it a specific call-out metric? How did, you, how did you approach this in your scoring and analysis? Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. And I have to say, um, Alvaro was uh, very helpful to us as we were sort of trying to think through how we were going to address um, equity in the um, scorecard. So I was greatly appreciative of his input. Um, the way that we approached it... Um, was largely dependent on what data that we had available to us. Because this is a scorecard, we were sort of limited by the information that we had access to. But one thing that we were certain about is that we wanted to sort of make sure that we were taking um, a somewhat all-encompassing um, definition of equity in that we wanted to make sure that we were capturing policies that impacted um, uh, low-income customers, um, uh, economically um, sort of... Uh, 
precarious um, communities as well as environmental justice communities to sort of get a sense, I think, for how states were actually sort of tackling the question of equity. Um, I think, as Alvaro mentioned, every state has a different definition of, pro- of, of equity that they apply to their programs. Some of them look at it specifically through a racial lens. Some of it look at it specifically through an income lens. And we just wanted to make sure, at least at, um, uh, as a first take on the evaluation that we were doing, that we were capturing all these different um, definitions of equity that states are using to um, to, to distribute uh, in, to distribute, sorry, investments or to create programs. And we found that those three in particular sort of captured at least broadly um, what states were uh, thinking on that front. Yeah, I just, uh, I, that's that's really good understanding in terms of how, how the report was put together. And I just wanted to emphasize kind of why we use a race-based definition to equity. Um, and I think for us, it's important to acknowledge that race is really a determining factor on some of the additional forms of inequities that we see, particularly as it relates to um, Black Americans. Um, race has been so integral to the development of the country and such a uh, guiding force in policymaking, in fact, um, you know, starting from slavery, of course, but then moving on to things like, um, you know, Jim Crow laws, um, to the displacement of Black Americans for highway construction, um, race has always been a determining factor in who wins and loses when it comes to policy decisions in America. So that's why for us, race takes such a kind of, um, you know, uh, a bigger role in needing to address the root causes of those inequities. Uh, so we believe that they have to be a race-based approach to addressing them because so much of the additional inequities that we see, whether that's income, environmental, even gender, they're rooted in that race, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, starting point. Um, so just wanted to to mention why we emphasize so much more of the racial equity component to the definition. Yeah, that's a very helpful clarification. And I think, uh, you know, as you say, it's been been around forever, but 2020 really shown a, a harsh spotlight on on all of that. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's it's on all of us to continue showing through various means, uh, how important it is to to not shutter that to the to the sidelines because it's it's front and center for so many things. Um, Paula V, I wanted to just circle back with you in terms of New Jersey's uh, programs and the things you guys have queued up. Are you how are you thinking about the equity component and staying accountable to the policy promises uh, and or what aspects of the programs? that you've laid out are already sort of endeavoring to address equity? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, I think Alvaro, that was extremely well put the way you sort of defined equity. Um, So for us in New Jersey, um, it it really starts at the top. I mean, the governor's economic development strategic plan centers on creating, essentially, the, the tagline is a stronger and fairer New Jersey economy for all. Um, and when we think about access, it's it's access to a few different things. It's access to dollars, access to information and resources, resources of different types, and also policies to therefore uh, support um, the access. So in keeping that in mind, the NGZIP, which is the, the pilot program that I referred to earlier, um, to which is essentially a voucher program for medium and heavy duty vehicles, um, the two prioritized communities are the Greater New York and the Greater Camden area. Um, and the way that these communities were selected were based on a quantitative analysis. So we factored in um, a few different criteria, including percentage of a municipality's uh, population meeting the overburdened community definition, um, the municipal population density, which was used as a proxy for traffic density, um, and also the MRI or the Municipal Revitalization Index. So. We obviously, for the sake of this program, given that it is a um, you know emissions related program, these are some of the critical factors that we we took into account and prioritized um, the two that came out at the top. Um, but that said, just the fact that we are starting on our first program centered around equity, equity in terms of access um, is important to highlight here. Um, one thing the few things to call out within the NGZIP program is we have allocated, $2 million each for the Greater New York and the Greater Camden within the $15 million pool of money. We've also carved out a $5 million 
um, carve out for small businesses. Um, again, going back to access, we want to ensure that these small businesses that perhaps don't have the sort of the fancy, um, you know, team that has and centrally focused on applying for grants to meet their ESG goals have the same level of access that perhaps an IKEA or an Amazon may also have um, to ensure that they are able to um, find their way through the system, making sure that we're able to support them with the right kind of information uh, while ensuring that they have access to be able to purchase um, the same kind of brand new zero emission medium and heavy duty vehicles uh, as any other larger companies. Um, that's one example. I mean, the other thing, uh, very recently, uh, Governor Murphy also announced a $250 million overhaul of the Walter Rand Transportation Center in Camden. Um, so this is just broadly on transportation. So talking about access, this particular transportation center is a vital transit hub in South Jersey. Um, so just by investing the $250 million and sort of overhauling this transit center will clearly open the door to an array of opportunities. Um, so we're talking about opportunities, not just economic, but educational and otherwise, um, many of which will probably never have come to fruition unless um, this sort of money goes into uh, these systems. And Sarah, to your question about how do we hold um, companies accountable, um, I mean, I think partly it has to do with making sure that you can quantify so that you can track but uh, 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 I think a first step to you, even before we start getting to quantify is I think agreeing on the set of metrics that everybody will quantify um, because there seems to be just a larger debate around what is and what shouldn't be tracked and quantified. Um, and I think uh, that's part of what we are working through as we launch some of these programs is to ensure that as vendors um, come to start providing some of these medium duty trucks or electrified trucks, uh, are fully aware of uh, what the state's expectations are. And we, in fact, are hoping that as part of these programs, we are able to help localize some of these supply chains because at the end of the day, um, equity comes down to, again, jobs, um, being able to have access to well-paying family income jobs. Um, and so by localizing and hopefully being able to do this more in the future, uh, local communities and workforce that exists within the local communities will have access to these types of jobs. And the last piece that I will also put in here um, is, as we're thinking through some of these programs, we are also trying to provide incentives for workforce development and training programs. We want to make sure that at the end of the day, you know, we can create all these cool new technologies and put them on the streets, um, put panels on the rooftops. But if you do not have the skilled workforce of the future, then there is nothing you can do within a very short amount of time. And so we're uh, deliberately investing time in ensuring that, uh, especially through the Office of Climate Action and Green Economy um, that the governor announced, that we are going to be taking this uh, sort of holistic statewide approach uh, to addressing this issue as well. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show maybe in a year's time and you can give us a full update on how things are, are rolling out and and, and the... Uh success of your efforts. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit, and we can still absolutely continue the conversation on, on the equity challenges, but I wanted to ask all of you to opine on the various regulatory and policy barriers that exist to transportation electrification at the state level. Uh, which ones you see as the most important or top two that are critical to tackle in the near term to unlock the widespread opportunity for electrification transportation as well as equitable transportation options. And Shruti, I'll maybe I'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Um, so the scorecard report sort of identified a, a couple of um, key policies that we think really sort of need to be addressed at the state level and also at the federal and local level to really um, ensure that um, I think electric vehicle deployment uh, takes off in the way that we want it to take off. Um, the past research that we uh, we referred to and engagement with subject matter experts um, really identified that um, one of the main barriers to the adoption of passenger vehicles is, in particular, is the upfront cost of those vehicles. So um, making sure we have those policy levers in place um, to really um, reduce the upfront cost that people associated with electric vehicles is going to be important. 
Um, I think there is a difference in terms of the kinds of incentives you can provide to to reduce that upfront cost. We have a lot, there's a lot of conversation about sort of creating that instantaneous rebate that people can take advantage of as and when they buy a vehicle. Um, and the fact that that is going to be significantly more effective than sort of um, creating a tax credit that um, people can take advantage of during tax season to get a, a refund on their um, EV purchases. Um, and conversations around those two um, levers also have um, equity implications because, um, uh, particularly in terms of, of income-focused equity, just because not everyone who is buying an EV may necessarily have the, the tax burden needed in order to take advantage of a tax credit. So I think there's a, there's a large conversation around the fact that um, sort of on the hood, what we call on the hood um, rebates that are provided at time of purchase are going to be more impactful on that, um, on that uh, front. The other big area that needs to be addressed, obviously, is EV charging infrastructure. Um, currently, we don't have the charging needed to support long-range EV driving in general. Um, and we're starting to see commitments, I think, both from states and, and federally. Um, uh, President Biden, as part of his campaign platform, identified that, you know, he was committed to uh, building something on the order of about 500,000 uh, um, uh, charging points across the country to make sure that they were able to support um, EV deployment in the way that we needed it. But of course, uh, more importantly, thinking about where these charging facilities are going to be and who has access to them and whether or not they serve um, neighborhoods that uh, particularly need them is going to be important as we discuss sort of uh, deploying um, uh, EV charging infrastructure. So that's sort of on the light duty side. When you start looking at heavy duty vehicles, you also have the added barrier of just a general lack of options on the market. Um, so we're looking at a very young market when it comes to heavy duty vehicles in, in particular. And this is where we really sort of need to see policy to drive growth. Um, and one of the things that we have seen be particularly successful is the new heavy duty MOU that came out after California adopted the ACT legis the ACT legislation which set targets for um, sales of heavy-duty vehicles. And we're really sort of seeing that um, that MOU is galvanizing states to think about their approaches to heavy-duty electrification. Um, and so we see it as sort of a great first step and a, and a great way to commit to getting vehicles on the market. Great. And for listeners who aren't familiar, the ACT rule is the Advanced Clean Trucks rule that came out of California a few months ago and definitely set a high bar for uh, the heavy-duty market, which, as you say, is is nascent and needs a lot more attention. Um, Alvaro, I'll I'll ask the same question of you: which which policy and/or regulatory barriers to transportation electrification and equitable transportation electrification do we see as most critical to tackle in the near term? Yeah, I mean, I think I have just uh, you know two two big ones. Um, number one is even in a state uh, in California that has had. Uh, a robust amount of funding to deploy electric vehicle technology on the roads. The biggest issue that we're facing now is a lack of sustained, um, consistent, uh, and robust funding moving forward for the deployment of these vehicles. Um, so I think this is at the state, the local, and the federal level, um, just the amount of revenue necessary to make this transition for incentives, for the purchase of fleets, for the deployment of charging infrastructure, um, it just there's a lot. It requires a lot of money, and I don't think that we are quite ready with the mechanisms in place that allow us to do this kind of investment. So funding is one huge barrier that I see, um, you know, in California included, but even more so in other states that we are working in, where they have even less available funding to make the transition. So I think that that'll be really important. And as we're thinking about coming up with funding mechanisms to deploy electric vehicle technology, um, it'll be really important from an equity perspective to ensure that we don't add additional burdens onto already impacted families and communities um, by developing, uh, you know, uh, regressive forms of revenue generation. And that as we distribute that revenue, that we include equity um, uh, strategies to ensure that those communities are actually being benefited from the investment uh, directly as opposed to a trickle-down benefit, which is, ten which is how it tends to happen. So funding is a huge one. And then the second one um, is really thinking about what's the goal of transportation electrification? Um, and, you know, often uh, it almost feels as though the goal is just getting more electric vehicles on the road. 
And I think one of the things that green mining has begun to just ask is, is the question to get more vehicles, even if they're cleaner on the road, or is it in fact to revolutionize the way that we move people and goods? And I think that that's a bigger picture question that I think we need to um, kind of have more clarity clarity around because not everybody needs to purchase an electric vehicle. Some people just need better transportation options that are not as polluting as the ones that we have now. Um, and I think it also involves uh, issues of land use, of housing, of proximity to jobs. I think it's a bigger picture conversation, but one that I think is important so that we don't just electrify the existing vehicle fleet, but in fact, we make mobility something that's uh, more accessible to everybody and hopefully uh, better, we're developing better communities as a, as a result of that. So I think pulling back a little bit from just the deployment of electric vehicles to really thinking about how do we revolutionize mobility is something that um, you know we are bringing up more and more uh, and to ensure that we're uh, kind of more we're developing um, more enduring solutions to our mobility challenges. Absolutely, and and certainly in the post-COVID era that we all hope to arrive at at some point, you know, wanting to make sure that transit is not a forgotten tool in our toolbox because it has been for a long time and it's done wonders and it continues to be a resource and a mobility option for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people across the country. So um, we need to keep that prioritized for sure. Um, Pallavi, same question to you. Um, I guess as an economic development authority, um, the one thing maybe my answer was going to be, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this question whether that is transportation electrification or any other sector, um, one of the primary ways of ensuring that a, that a sector can thrive and that ultimately companies can take, take their money and choose to invest here and that investors will follow as a result is to ensure that there's ease of doing business in, within a state. And that's very much a, um, a, a policy-based regulatory barrier that exists in many states. Um, so, for example, like streamlining, permitting, integration, approvals, and interconnections is, I think, just a, a lingering question as it relates to vehicle uh, transportation, vehicle electrification. Um, even, I mean, we're almost trying to like build the plane as we're trying to fly it as well, sort of trying to come up with like brand new vehicles with no real standards in place just yet, but also trying to figure out how do we then attract all these businesses to various states, which all states are doing, uh, rightfully so. Um, so definitely making sure and sort of sort of putting a, a big focus lamp on ease of doing business is, I think, central to ensuring that we are able to remove some of the crucial barriers at the start of the, as the industry is sort of growing. Um, the other piece that I will also say, just having worked in innovation myself, innovation is central, disruptive innovation and incremental innovation is central to ensuring that, you know, things get cheaper trucks get cheaper, vehicles get cheaper, and it becomes easier for uh, low and moderate income communities to have access to this, the very same vehicles. And at some point, hopefully, you know, we're, we're talking about much significantly longer term where um, you, you want to be able to have a sector that can grow and thrive on its own uh, without too many additional policies in place. But if, in order for that to happen, there needs to be a significant amount of, um, you know, programmatic decisions that need to be made to invest and support innovation and improve access to ecosystem networks. Um, I think that's absolutely crucial. And again, we're starting sort of from, from uh, very early stages here where you have the companies that, that there are today that can make all these huge, um, awesome looking vehicles. Uh, but then there is, you will require more localized systems in place to ensure that you're able to provide the necessary support to the vehicle drivers. So maybe that's in the form of a mechanic store that knows how to address challenges related to these vehicles and sort of ensuring that innovation related to parts and replacement parts that will be necessary, charging infrastructure that will be necessary and maintaining those that will be necessary is also taken into consideration um, is I think going to be super crucial. Um, I, the obvious, uh, the, the other ones that I think Alvaro and Shruti mentioned are also just as important, but I figured I would try to address it with, with a few additional points there. Yes, thanks. And they are excellent points. And yes, cutting red tape is really going to be key. We learned 
some very hard lessons with rooftop solar and learning the same lessons with energy storage um, in terms of how challenging it is to navigate the patchwork of permitting and interconnection requirements across the country. So to the extent the EV markets can uh, coalesce around a common set of best practices and states and utilities can uh, adopt them quickly without a whole lot of uh, fuss, we will get there much faster. And um, I definitely want to give a double plug for interconnection being a, a real uh, bottleneck that we need to continue to maintain a focus on. Um, it's not something that is front and center. Most people don't even know about interconnection, but it is basically the rules that govern the grid. And if we're going to see EV chargers deployed across the country in, in high volumes, um, those interconnection requests have to go through utilities, and they can be very lengthy and costly and cumbersome. Um, so figuring out how to do that better um, as soon as possible is going to definitely save everyone a lot of time and and enable the um, business folks and the market to uh, improve their efficiencies and, and pass those cost savings on to customers. Um, so we are sadly closing out on our time. I, I, I really would like to actually have another hour or two with you all. You guys have so much to contribute to this important conversation. Um, I'll finish with one final question, which is uh, kind of the who question. Um, from your vantage point and or from your observation of, of this space, who are the key players that can really drive the electrification in the transportation sector and do so equitably? Um, and the flip side to that is, you know, who are the most opposed to this and fighting this that we should be aware of? Um, Alvaro, I'll start with you. Um. I mean, I think I'll start with who is the most opposed, and I think, no surprise, um, it would be those that I think want to maintain the status quo and uh, rely on fossil fuels and uh, ensure that we have um, developed the types of communities that rely uh, heavily on um, personal used automobiles um, and, you know, for economic purposes. So. I mean, I think industry uh, that that aligns to to those goals. I think that that definitely we're seeing that as being the the opposition. Um, and in terms of who are the key players that can uh, that need to be involved to drive electrification transportation, from our perspective, in fact, it's actually a lot of the environmental justice and equity uh, organizations who are currently not heavily involved in this conversation. Um, we uh, started this project called the Torch Equitable Electric Mobility Community of Practice, in which we are working with partners in Colorado, Illinois, Virginia, and North Carolina. And the goal there is really to identify and build the capacity of environmental justice and equity organizations in those communities that have not currently been involved in vehicle electrification conversations and give them capacity building resources and training for them to be more engaged. And the reason why we believe these are players that are key to the conversation and um, you know, will help us make better progress on our goals is because they are a missing part of the conversation that I think doesn't allow a lot of folks who would be supportive of these initiatives to see themselves and how the work is being developed. Again, you know, um, early adopters were like the prototype of who we were we were building policy for as it related to vehicle electrification. This tend to be white males. We need everyone else to feel themselves seen in vehicle electrification strategies. And I think by focusing and building the capacity of these organizations and aligning our policy making and regulatory frameworks towards meeting the needs that they have, they will become hardened uh, advocates of vehicle electrification and they will help in fact, us be more bold, more ambitious, faster in our goal setting for vehicle electrification. But right now, they're kind of sitting on the bench in, in some places. They're not even known. So I think we need to beef up um, our outreach to these organizations, get them in the game, and have them help us uh, lead um, towards uh, more aggressive vehicle electrification goals. Great suggestion. And, and, of course, the philanthropic community can play a big role in supporting those entities and those organizations and building capacity. So that's a kind of part and parcel with that suggestion. Um, Pallavi? Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, community engagement is, I think, central to some of this 
effort or any kind of effort uh, across the states. I completely agree with you. Um, and I mean, for us, obviously, from a from an EDA standpoint, um, here in the state, we work closely across all agencies. We even as we rolled out the NGZIP program, uh, we work very closely with the DEP, um, the DOT, BPU. So it's and a host of other agencies here, and it's it's truly been an interagency effort as we've rolled out the the first uh, program. But in addition to that, we've also uh, consistently stayed engaged with the environmental justice communities. So to Alvaro's point, um, I agree that I think ensuring that they're sort of embarking on this journey with you is going to be absolutely central to not just ensuring that you have the, their buy-in. Uh, but ensuring that there is local community engagement. So for all the programs that we roll out, like I mentioned, even within the NGZIP, um, there is a car work for small businesses and for the two communities that are the uh, prioritized communities for uh, the pilot program. Um, the only way that we will be successful is by ensuring that we coordinate and collaborate with local communities, these environmental justice advo uh, advocates, uh, to ensure that we are reaching out to the smallest of the small businesses, um, to ensure that they have the access, again, coming back to the access to information and the same set of resources that a significantly or a relatively larger organization can have access to. Um, but really for New Jersey, um, the it's, it's very much a whole of a government approach. It's spearheaded by the governor's office and our commitment to electrification comes from the top. Um, so ensuring that we sort of follow through on some of these objectives and um, commitments um, is absolutely pivotal to ensuring that our programs are, are, are successful. Um, and then the last piece I will say is having worked in the private sector and now in the public, I think um, ensuring that we are somehow creating um, successful private-public partnerships will also be essential uh, to ensure that everyone's successful uh, in this transportation um, journey. Really, because there are large organizations that are trying to do um, some good things for sure. And I think some, sometimes trying to find their way and there isn't enough information on how they can potentially engage with local governments. And I think um, there needs to be more um, sort of a, a push and a pull there, both from the private and the public sector to ensure that we're working closely um, to embark on uh, enrolling out some of these programs. Absolutely. I agree. Um, Shruti. Your uh, thoughts on who the key players are that can really drive transportation electrification and or thoughts on who's really opposed in fighting this that needs to be brought to the table? Yeah, um, let me start with the the opposition. Um, I think in the course of our work, ACCE has sort of found um, that it's always a little bit harder to make the case for electric vehicles in places where sort of environmental impact or emissions is not, you know, a focus. So one of the ways that we have actually been um, trying to sort of change them that messaging is to talk through um, a lot about, is to talk through sort of the economic, social, and air quality benefits of transportation electrification and using that as a way to bring um, folks who wouldn't necessarily be thinking about EVs as a solution to anything to the table uh, in a conversation about transportation electrification. Um, in terms of the key players, I think Pallavi and Alvaro are spot on in terms of um, making sure that we engage with the environmental justice and um, equity or communities, as well as community-based organizations. Um, I think their input will actually be more vital um, in terms of creating adequate programs in the long run. Um, if you're looking at the policy level, I think there needs to be coordinated um, uh, uh, activity at the state, local, and um, federal levels if we're going to be able to sort of meet um, the goals that are being thrown around with regards to um, transportation electrification and the deployment of, of light duty and heavy duty vehicles in particular. Um, our uh, approach is that each of those different jurisdictional levels have oversight over something that is going to be relevant to this conversation. Um, so when we're talking about state and federal, they have the opportunity to pull some of the levers that I discussed, discussed uh, early on, earlier on this conversation. Um, and also, I think, um, hold the purse strings, particularly as it pertains to sort of um, uh, investments in transportation electrification. Cities in particular, um, I also think, have jurisdiction over a whole set of policies that um, don't necessarily um, 
appear in state and federal priorities. And I think Alvaro touched on this briefly. I think that deploying electric vehicles for the sake of deploying electric vehicles is not really what we want to have happen in the future. And so in the work that ACEEE has been doing, we sort of build into build in a transportation system efficiency um, aspect to how we're start talking about electric vehicles. And cities have a lot, uh, have a big role to play in terms of trying to determine what land use looks like, um, zoning regulations, um, transit investments in collaboration with their transit agencies, of course, but there are a number of things that um, cities can do to sort of drive transportation electrification in the way that we want to see it driven. So not necessarily in a way that um, uh, where everyone owns a personal EV, but in a way where we can bring um, transportation electrification to the masses in different sort of use cases through um shared vehicles, through public transit, through um, even electrified micromobility. So um, I very much see uh, the um, key players in this as really sort of being a wide swath of people to achieve the goals that we want to achieve with um, transportation electrification. Absolutely. We're all going on a road trip, folks. Get in. (laughs) We're going to need maps and a compass and snacks and enough charge to get us there. Um, well, thank you all so much. I, I am sad we have to conclude, but I'm so grateful for your time, your expertise, and more so what you all are doing in this space. Um, so thanks for joining me on Electrify This. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And thank you to the listeners and subscribers. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm helping policymakers make informed energy choices and accelerate clean energy by supporting the policies that most effectively reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and this podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. And I invite you to continue subscribing, following, sharing, giving us reviews, and tagging us on social, hashtag Electrify This. And with that, I really do uh, appreciate all the excitement around this podcast. It's an early one in an ever-growing space, but really appreciate everyone for your um, continued support. And with that, I look forward to next month, and I'm not sure what the topic is yet, but you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to have something to do with electrification. So with that, I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. (laughs) 